entendi como isso. Ela relaciona-se através do Welcome to the Wording Dances podcast, a lecture series by dance artists who have something to say about what they do. I am your host, Carlos Oliveira, and this is a co-production between Victor Cordon Studios and Parasite Association in Lisbon. Wording Dances presents a series of episodes, both in English and Portuguese, where renowned artists from the international contemporary dance scene discuss matters which make of dancing and choreographing an inexhaustible terrain of experimentation, problematization and thinking. Today, we invited Shibon Davis to read to us from a text which she prepared exclusively for this occasion. Shibon is a dancer, choreographer and filmmaker engaged with image gathering, drawing, writing and conversation as extensions of dancing and choreography. She has been active for over 50 years, making work for both theaters and galleries, and in 2006, together with architect Sarah Vicklesworth, created the Shibon Davis Dance Studios in London. She retired from the studios in 2020 but still remains an associate professor at Coventry University. We will now listen to Shibon for about 30 minutes, after which she and I will discuss a bit about the relationship between writing and dancing. So please let yourself tune into the listening and enjoy the words. Postcards from a life which dances. To begin this talk, I'm going to mention some fragments of experiences which have accompanied me and are embedded within me. I don't sense them as memories, but more as active shards of information, stories and dialogues to be continued, maybe glimpses of events and shadows to pursue. Separately, They are pinpoints on a map of influences, and when collected together, they become a kind of compost I use as a resource for making, researching or being in conversation, and engaging with others and what they make or do. The fragments. Scraps of paper. Pencil sketches, printed images, writings, events which happened and the ones I have imagined. A touch, a smell, a word, family photographs, dancers, a dream, snatches of conversation, lost movements, poses, gestures, different anatomies, the action of animals, nature, and then far more. The all of me who has studied dance has a relationship with these fragments, and these fragments grow to become part of my inquiry into other mediums which move. These were personal choices, both expansive and intimate, but less chosen to be autobiographical and more to see through me into other places and people. 
I attached these fragments or wrote a note about them onto postcards. I collected these and occasionally scatter them out onto a table. I wait until my hand goes to a card and then to another. The two may not belong to the same family or hold a continuous thought, but there is a kinship which lets my mind and imagination move freely between them. I move to select other cards and test if or what might emerge from their side-by-sideness. I might pick up the oldest photograph of a tree and then find an image of a dancer in mid-movement or a text about how the whole body feels while blowing glass alongside a drawing of a neural structure or a Francis Bacon sketch next to a photograph by the scientist Jules-Étienne Marais. Something unlanguaged can light up within me and then sometimes it doesn't. A sense of moving is agitated in the spaces between the images. The cards could be gathered up and then, without being particularly conscious of my behaviour, I distributed these cards around the house, the postcards becoming part of the home I lived in. There was an undercurrent hum going on between them. The gathering, placing and occasional losing of the cards is constant like cooking or cleaning, dreaming and drawing. The presence of the cards are a way of life, which is how I like to think of dancing and making, at least some of the time. Each card is an addition, which over time grows beyond the name or subject it might hold. They become active with others, and I am only one part of that process. First postcard. I know a man who, due to an infection he caught when young, lost all sense of proprioception. When he wakes up in the morning and his eyes are closed, he has no perception or awareness of the position and movement of his body. He can neither feel his body nor the bed beneath him. He has to think through the slightest move in great detail. He uses his stomach muscles to sit up, but he cannot feel them. He sees his legs and shifts them and places his feet on a floor he cannot sense. He stands very slowly because he has to work out how to balance and then rebalance as his weight rises. He has to do what he needs to do and make his own safety second by second. He needs to predict what might come next, but always be ready for a dangerous surprise, something unexpected underfoot or someone walking by too close. There is a physical risk to every minute of his day. Second postcard. I watch my granddaughter's earliest moves, the gradual opening of her eyes, her increasing focus, the jerky movements of her limbs, the contractions in her torso, the daily emergence of her consciousness. Her movements are the ones she needs to save her life with, and each one brings her more information. She grows a sense of what she is doing and works with it. She learns that this is her body, and with it she can explore objects and her surroundings and find safety where she can. Nothing is wasted, she keeps learning. She grows daily and needs to adjust to her altering body, 
and her capacity to be in and of her world. Third postcard. I'm in the Arctic Circle, briefly isolated from the rest and feel very alone and in more danger than ever before. My blood feels hot and very red and oh so necessary to my life. So many different hues of white surround me. Sudden black moss appears at my feet. The dried blood red of Joseph Boyce's drawings. Fourth postcard. I watched my 99-year-old mother-in-law sense the gradual loss of her life. She knew it was coming. She had the extraordinary wisdom and the patience to let her body tell her that there will gradually be less and less movement. But she does not lose the essence of herself. Fifth postcard. I am in the presence of a very knowledgeable dancer. She does not waste any movement because she has no need. She is the movement she has practiced and the clarity of her doing it makes her a little transparent. She has become so knowledgeable that I can see movement from within her travel across her skin like sunlight passing across a landscape when it briefly highlights a particular feature. I watched the same dancer die. Stillness had been there for a long while, but then life left, one breath, then none. Sixth postcard, a tennis player, a jazz trumpeter, a glass blower, a goalkeeper, a surfer, a rock climber, a tightrope walker, a fighter pilot. I have collected writings which describe the physical state of those involved in these actions. The words used are spare. They are there to describe the meticulous research needed to undertake these extreme activities. Occasionally, the language expands to show the beauty of such an accurate pursuit. These descriptions can unfurl something unlit within me, and I am aware of an ancient response which incorporates fear, pinpoints clarity and tenacity. My body does not forget reading these words. Seventh postcard. I take long walks in London and often get into a silent argument or discussion with myself and forget to notice the city's idiosyncrasies. So I ask myself at the beginning of the walk, to notice every time I see a different colour. Maybe the colour red, in a sign, a pair of shoes, some bricks, and that brings the environment I am sharing with others closer to me. I am walking, and sense someone else is walking upside down beneath me, the soles of our feet touching on each step. Eighth postcard. I am face to face with the Ice Age figure, the Lion Man, made 40,000 years ago. The photograph I have of him reminds me of the moment we came face to face at the British Museum. He was smaller than I had thought, 31 centimetres tall, and owning a long-held presence, called the Lion Man because the upright figure has a lion's head and a partly human body. He is standing full square and may be readying himself for action by rising on his toes. His arms are by his sides, his neck thickens as it supports the weight of his lion head. He looks forward with great attentiveness. He is the oldest known representation of a being that does not exist in a physical form. He faces out, 
his expression reaching us 40,000 years later. This out-of-our-world creature has been imagined and then so carefully made by the hands of his makers. Ninth postcard. I am at the side of a stage. I am nervous of crossing the threshold and being in the void of a clear space. I ask myself to imagine the molecules of air I'm about to step into as much thicker than usual, and the increased pressure they give gives me resistance to push against, and that bears me up. I imagine the air as a colour, and as my body compresses the air with a movement, let's say my arm pressing back, the pressed air becomes a denser colour. Tenth postcard. The curtain goes up on a woman dancer who crouches in the downstage left corner. She is and feels so small in relationship to the breadth, height and depth of the otherwise clear space. Her feet are planted on the ground, her weight seeping through her skin into the floor, as well as spreading from heel to toes. Her spine is curved, her pelvis close to her heels, her legs folded and her knees are close to her face and she can feel her warm breath in her enclosed posture. She is preparing to unfurl, to rise her sense of gravity. Her legs unfold, she changes her gaze so that she can include where she is heading towards. Her back straightens at a tilt and she falls forward, releasing her heels from the ground, finding how her toes abandon their grip. Her body may be remembering her child's steps, but maybe not. She measures the width of the stage in steps of different sizes, and then her dancing starts. Eleventh postcard. I can't remember the occasion when I last ran well. That last perfect, easy, fast run is still in my body somewhere, even if I can no longer do it. I can meet the moment of doing it. Twelfth postcard. A young child's head, so new and perfectly balanced on her neck and spine. I will give the postcards a brief rest while I think through something. I bring the crouching figure, the lion man, a tennis player, a child's posture into me to join other figures who share my body. These figures are both recognisable to me as well as useful strangers. They accompany me before and while I dance, and then they stay. A few years ago, I would not have written about this collection of postcards as a way to understand my version of dancing. I would have tried to write about dancing using dancing as the medium to concentrate on. I think I believed that dance would reveal dance, but at the same time I knew that wasn't working for me. I used the postcards to help me better understand the physical fluidity and depth of movement between all things, to share the histories of movement embedded in each of us. The Lion Man and others are our kin. Postcard 13. A huge face is filling a screen and the actor is experiencing a thought and feeling. Very little of their face moves, but along with their eyes, there is just enough alteration for us to begin to sense the mood change or thought process. The smallest of movements can give a great deal away. 
postcards 14 to 21. The Lion Man stands, the charioteer from Delphi stands, Anthony Gormley figures stand, a fashion model stands, standing stones, a child alert and elder curved, a dancer stands, we stand on a turning earth. If I use the pencil line to draw one figure on top of the other, a score of subtle differences would emerge between their attitudes and anatomies. Postcard 22. I have to be careful when I language these noticings because the words transform my feeling into another not fully accurate form. I must trust the form I have found. Postcard 23. I dream of flying from a standing position rising straight up into the air like Mary Poppins, and in this dream state, I can still feel vertigo. The next paragraph briefly moves away from the postcards. The emergence of consciousness in an infant and the loss of it at the close of a life. These are both infinitesimal moments and huge. A whole system of a life in movement and change is engaged between these instances And how can dance be seen to be present as part of this whole system? I want to notice and get closer to the movements we live by and not lose their presence as foundations to choreographed movement. Are they like a home key in music? A moment to return to after the dancing has been released out and choreographically explored and expanded? My home key are those moves which return me to the histories of movement embedded in each of us and where possible allow the watcher, the listener, to enter a descriptive world and feel the weight of their own body, walking or turning or falling. Postcard 24. Charlie Morrissey invited an audience to watch him reverse the gravitational force. He began on the floor and lifted his body slowly up in a normal way, and speaking all the time about his body sensing a force attracting him up into the air rather than down to the ground. Finally, he stood up. The room was totally quiet and an extraordinary feeling existed amongst all of us that he might just levitate. Postcard 25. A dancer, Helka Kasky, asked someone visiting a gallery if they would like to complete a work with her. She would lie on the ground and the visitor was asked by Helka to give her safe and detailed instructions so that she could stand up. The ask was for very detailed information, not simply for the visitor to say, please roll over, but for them to break the action down into the smallest of movements, shifts of weight and focus needed to accomplish a role or a rising of a knee or a placing of a foot. Helka was helpful and tried to follow the instructions she was given accurately. And by doing this, she never repeated the standing up in exactly the same way. There was a beautiful articulacy to every stillness she held while waiting for more information. To begin with, the visitor to the gallery felt confident and slightly distanced from Helka. But after about two minutes, they became deeply engaged with what they were being asked and how something they knew so well was complex and ingenious. Postcard 26. A sketch by Francis Bacon of a crouching, coiled figure 
human and with the energy of an animal. The swiftness of the artist's hand aligned to the feel of speed in the action in the figure. Postcard 27. A Rembrandt drawing of a woman bending over a child, made with very few brush strokes, nearly abstract, and yet so much handed over to us while we are, for a while, part of her gesture. Postcard 28. Jules Etienne Marais. Blacks and whites capturing the flight of a bird, a horse galloping, a man walking, sitting and jumping. Some of them appear as negatives. Several phases of their particular movement are held within one photographic frame. These are actions I know well and can see on any day, except that my eye and brain do not have the capacity to see all the details. I have drunk from these clear anatomical images, marvelled because they were made as photography was first coming into existence, and these images are made in the service of science. They are stimulating to both my imagination and to the hidden realities of movement. Postcard 29. A mouse's spinal cord, neurons from a child's auditory canal, muscle cells of a scarab beetle, neurons from a pigeon's cerebellum. Four works from nearly 3,000 exquisite drawings of the microanatomy of the brain made by the 19th century artist and neuroscientist Santiago Ramon y Cajal. Such useful beauty hidden inside every detail. I am leaving the postcards again. I sense that while I want to think for myself, what I am more deeply aware of is that I am not by myself. A few years after beginning this collection, I altered the material from card to acetate. I chose to print onto transparent paper and I could see a second image through a first. The opportunity to layer one figure on top of another, one use of material seen through another, felt more bodily to me. I wished to sense within myself past physical events and sightings and what their relationship was to me now. I knew that these experiences did not rise up intact. Whatever happened between then and now had been active and would alter the fabric of a memory. Time and the layering of other experiences altered the original. Placing the acetates close or one on top of the other arrested ideas around the memory of when and why they were initially chosen, because now something else arrived in the present relationship between them. Eventually, many of these transparencies became the materials of a film I called transparent. The script grew out of my desire to describe my physical relationship with first the cards and then the transparent images. At one point, I layered many of the printed acetates with writings I had found which describe the feeling of an action, from novels, sports writing, craft making, builders. The layering meant that after three or four layers, it was hard to decipher any one word but I enjoyed the imagined experience of dropping down through the words like excavating a burrow. Here is the script that pulls together into words some of my felt experiences. I recall a moment when, as a young dancer, I found myself trapped by an imagined sensation of being made up from separate parts, head, torso, legs. 
like a figure from the game Exquisite Corpses, where three people take turns to draw sections of a body on a sheet of paper, folded to hide each of their contributions, and at the end the paper is unfolded to reveal a strange, disconnected creature. I felt myself as this creature, not uninteresting when still, but shambolic when moving. Then there came a moment when I was standing, ready to run. I fell forward and I ran fast and I fleetingly became gloriously whole. It was as if my body became known to me and then it disassembled again. I remembered watching my whippet dog called Pip run fast and I marvelled at his sleek efficiency, the elasticity of his spine as his legs gathered in a knot under his stomach before fully extending both forwards and backwards. Every atom of him was collaborating with every other. There was no wastage. I wanted to cross some border within me so that my body might understand better this animal action. I was in a dim dance studio with my eyes closed, still noticing how my legs felt alien to my arms, how my limbs have different characters. I stood straight, raised my right hand and knocked three times on an imaginary door. I wanted to open the space in front of me and walk through into a place I did not know yet. Passing through the imaginary doorway helped me to abandon my upright bipedal human habit and attune myself to a more primordial four-legged body, spine elongating forward and back, snout to tail. I sensed my flat human face reach forward into an alternative head, my neck and jaw developing a different relationship, allowing more connection to my spine, my senses of sight, Hearing, smell and touch, even the taste in my mouth seemed to alter. I tried to travel down my trunk, the sensation of being in an altered state. I go down on all fours. I stretch out along the floor. My arms and legs are now in service, rather than decorative or gestural. My pelvis drops its weight, elongating the feeling of my spine. My thighs lengthen away from my hip joints. My stomach is exposed and feels as if it needs to retreat. My spine is initiating the action, but so is my imagination, the physical and the mental combined. It's exciting to unearth animal origins within me, to transform my everyday body from the inside. I stay there for a long time, trying to work out what is going on because I feel totally different. Is it possible that I am unfurling a memory of my pre-human past, attempting to draw a figure into my body, the body of a beast or a big cat, a lion. The four-legged creature in me has managed to connect my limbs through my spine. And with that, my sense of my dancing body changes. I feel that I can now stand and not forget where my standing comes from and one that I can use to stand up in a more informed way and work with more directly. The presence of another body hovering within mine is a sensation that I've had since childhood. I used to think that I was half horse, half girl, or sometimes I imagined having a man's body. 
I even believed that I was a constantly changing drawing being drawn by someone else. And while dancing, I tried to focus on being in a state of becoming rather than arrival, becoming something else which I may not know yet. This is the end of the script. And these last words linger with me because I'm not sure what comes next, as I sense the world expand in all directions. And sometimes it is simply enough to notice being here, to be doing the living. Thank you. This was Shibon Davis reading postcards from a life which dances, which she wrote exclusively for this occasion. Thank you so much, Shibon, for the text. You have come to make use of imagery as an extension of making use of the body, and in analogy, making use of other media such as photography, drawing, but also written text, of course, to think choreographically. You, of course, have come to do choreography by different means, such as movies, or even the choreographic objects devised in the frame of your archive project. I think they were called kitchens, in the sense of being tools to cook dance with. So how is it that, in your experience, uh, writing allows to think choreographically? And in extension, how is it that, for you, choreographic thinking can take forms other than dance? And how can those forms contribute to choreography itself? That's a good long question. I began to dance very innocently. I was at art school and somebody took me to a dance class. I was overtaken by the idea of dance. But the only tools I had at that point were art school tools. So in some way, I could make sense of being in a dance studio by thinking of drawing with my body or trying to remember anatomical studies that helped drawing or color or how one might place a mark on a page. So these art school ideas alongside the fact that my parents and godparents had always taken me to galleries, always. So it was quite natural for me to be in the presence of painting and drawing and books about all the visual arts. So I think I brought those into the studio as allies and was shocked by how much there was simply to learn by moving itself and how awkward I was. I would watch the teacher in front of me move and to some extent think that I had to copy her. Whereas at art school, I hadn't ever thought of in terms of copying, I'd thought of being with the pencil and paper and charcoal. I loved charcoal. I loved making a mess. So it took quite a while to understand that the physicality of painting and drawing could be aligned to the physicality of moving and dancing. So that's one thread. 
In terms of writing, I don't think any teacher of mine at school would have thought of me as academic. And I was saddened that my use of written language felt poor, that I wasn't able to fully explain the states of excitement or imagination or who or what I was in writing. And I was beginning to do that with dancing. And I loved reading. So then I'd find passages in books where my whole body seemed to slightly lift off the ground because I felt the activity that the person was doing in the book. And I thought, why can't I dance like this writer writes? And so began the desire to try and write physically. So in a way, those are both dancerly points of views rather than choreographic. But I think the dancer in me needed to think about painting and drawing and writing. And therefore, gradually, that became useful to me as a choreographer. How do you see this divide between dance and choreography? I think it's something I probably other dancers and choreographers think of a lot. Traditionally, the choreographer was deemed separate to the dancer. I was brought up in that medium that the choreographer advised or told me what to do and how to do it. And as a dancer, I would respond. When I was asked to choreograph for the first time, which was by the then director of London Contemporary Dance Theatre, Robert Cohan, he wanted everybody in the company to experience what it must feel like to be a choreographer, so that as a dancer, you would have more sympathy or empathy or be able to support the choreographer by having done it once yourself. So I made a, a work and that started to forge the energy and the bridge between the fact that this is an absolute partnership. And when I began to choreograph, if I hadn't had very supportive dancers, I wouldn't have managed to make anything. So this sort of Moebius strip of energy passing between the choreographer and the dancer is a place that I enjoy being in. But another understanding that I want to say now is that both should be felt experiences. So one, I imagine, or one imagines that the dancer is always having a felt experience. And yet, can it be perceived that the choreographer is having a more intellectual experience? And I defy that. I think if the choreographer isn't having a felt experience, then their felt intelligence, which we all, whether we're a dancer or not, have, which has accrued over our entire lifetime, dance allows us to apply that felt intelligence, whether it's choreographic or whether it's dancer. Uh, and in terms of text and imagery, 
having had the experiences I've had now over 50 years, when I look at a series of images placed side by side, or several in a collage, the way that I am able to appreciate them more fully is when I feel the exchange between them rather than when I see it. At a certain point, you, you say that dance has not revealed dance to you and that you have found sources of it and for it elsewhere. For example, you talk about this idea of kin and many times in your text, I feel that the way you understand dance necessarily implies this uh, collectivity, this this condition that dance only happens if it happens in the relationship between bodies. And so I, I was wondering how, how have you really found sources for dancing elsewhere other than dance, for example, in this idea of kin? Well, beginning as a young dancer, I concentrated on the various acts of dancing that I tried to encompass and become. And it, it took a while to realize that the conversation within my body was rotating on a quite narrow sphere. So I was asking dance to explain dance to my body. And it felt as if I was going around a small circle and that it was important to look out and up and see what else was naturally informing me. I just chose not to notice it at that time. So then I chose to notice all the other things that were in my life. Uh, and to begin with, that was the other arts, very particularly um, drawing, painting and photography and writing. And later on, because I wasn't a particularly articulate dancer in my early years, I was quite happy to walk across the stage instead of dance across the stage. And then I realized that to walk is extraordinary. It's a very rich vocabulary of res a series of responding moves that ricochet, ripple through my body. And the moment I became excited by that, then that also expanded my circle of thinking that it was really useful for me to think in simple moves as well as complex ones. And with the simple moves, those simple moves are shared. They're shared by all of us. So this, this allowed me to realize that, fully realize that to move is such a shared language. So for a start, everybody who walks into a theater or a gallery shares everything shares so many movements with me, even though I might choose to expand on those movements later on. 
But our other shared language is that we have grown since infanthood, since being born, since before being born, we have learnt so much through movement itself. And the feedback that movement gives us, which then expands the mind to be able to encompass more about how you can grow and be useful and enjoy the world. So I become entranced by this idea that various communities move in very different ways, but together we have this immensely rich common language. And I never want to forget that when I'm dancing. This was Shibon Davis, to whom I would like to thank the availability to deliver this talk and to converse with me. I would also like to thank Stephen Smith, who helped us recording it in London. We will soon publish some new installments in this lecture series, so if you wish to know more about the up-and-coming releases, please follow Victor Cordon Studios and Parasita Association on social media, websites and streaming platforms. I would also like to thank you for being there, listening, and I hope you can join us in the following episodes. This is all for today, thank you so much.